One of the questions that we'll, we'll ask in our coaching is, you know, in this situation where you've got a boss that seems to be a blocker, you know, what percentage of this is about your boss? What percentage of this is about you? And what percentage of this is about the system? Mm. And it would take pretty much a very, very narcissistic person to say, none of it is about you, right? right? And so when you do that, you start to open the door of saying, okay, so I've got this constraint and I understand that there's this block, but what oftentimes basically is just saying there's something for you to learn. What is it that you can learn? Um, You're in a room game. How are you going to get out of that room game? So I think that that's really um, interesting and, 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 and powerful just to say, well, if your boss is the constraint, then like you said, what are you going to create out of that? And what is there for you to learn? Because inevitably there is something for you to learn about yourself and how to become more effective. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Whitney Johnson. Whitney's the author of the book titled Disrupt Yourself, Master Relentless Change and Speed Up Your Learning Curve. And in this conversation from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, that's exactly what we're talking about. Personal change, personal growth, continuous learning. Now, right off the bat, let me tell you that I love this book. If you're in sales in any capacity and you're struggling to improve your performance, and perhaps you need some additional motivation to make a change, then you need to read Whitney's book. So in this this conversation, Whitney and I cover a lot of ground. She explains how the S-curve of innovative disruption that was first popularized in the late Clayton Christensen's famous book, The Innovator's Dilemma, how you can apply this S-curve to your personal disruption, your personal transformation. We dig into the psychology and neuroscience related to the personal transformation and the factors that drive your motivation to want to learn. And we talk about why some people feel it's too big a risk, ironically, to invest in their own development, too big a risk to disrupt themselves. As a result, they stick with the status quo rather than invest to achieve. So we dig into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Whitney, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. Thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Whitney, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. I am delighted to be here. Well, I'm excited to, to talk to you because I liked your book a lot. So, um, you know, some, I know you didn't write it for a sales audience per se, but there's a lot of very sales-specific stuff in there, I thought, at least maybe the lens I read it, so I can't wait to chat with you about it. But one thing I, I want to ask first, and hopefully you're well, we're recording this in the midst of the, the lockdown, so I didn't want to omit the formalities, but are everybody's healthy on your end? We are well. Thank you for asking. I mean, it's one of those questions that it used to be just a nicety, but it's now a real question, isn't it? It is a real question, right? Well, that's good. And you're joining us from where again? We live in Lexington, Virginia. So my, my husband is a professor at Southern Virginia University, which is also near Virginia Military Institute mm-hmm. and Washington and Lee. So we're about three hours driving southwest of Washington, D.C. So is that like out near Roanoke then? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's our right. closest airport. It's about 50 miles away. Wow. Okay. So having lived in big cities, you're sort of doing a little more, not say rural, but smaller city living. <gasps> It's definitely rural. We oh, okay. completely <laughs> disrupted ourselves. I mean, like if you look outside of our window in the morning, we can see deer and there are cows uh, next door to us. In fact, 
when we very first moved here, because we've lived in Boston and Manhattan and mm-hmm. you know, large cities. And when we first moved here, I remember waking up one morning and I like was hitting my, not hitting him, but like, you know, t- pulling my, honey, honey, turn off your phone. Because it was like buzzing, buzzing. And he turned over and he's like, those are the cows mooing. <laughs> so it has definitely been an adjustment for us. Yeah, I mean, I find when I'm away from Manhattan, depending where I go, but like when I visit my sister in Wisconsin and and both my wife and I sort of get woken up by the quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's too quiet. And it's like, wait, why are we awake? Why are we awake? And you're so accustomed <laughs> to having the noise outside all the time that, or, you know, at some level that, that uh, yeah, when it's too quiet, it, yeah, it keeps me up. Oh, I love that. Woken up by the quiet. So I was going to ask you, are are you a fellow soccer fan? Because you wrote that you were going to produce a reality TV show about soccer oh. in Latin America. And listeners to the show know that I'm an avid soccer fan. Oh, I wish I could say that I am. I <laughs> okay. just got really excited. So this um, this is actually you know almost 15 years ago now where... I, I, I was a huge American Idol fan and a huge So You Think You Can Dance fan. And mm-hmm. and I was doing a lot of work in Latin America. I was an equity analyst. And so, you know, I've been to Mexico 50 times. So I spent a lot of my career doing work in Latin America. And one of our companies that we followed um, as an equity analyst was Televisa, which mm-hmm. at the time was basically ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox combined. And again, this is 15 years ago. And so we thought, wait, we have an opportunity here to basically do, you know, soccer meets American Idol and just got so excited about the stories that that could have produced. Um, So while I'm not a soccer fan per se, I am a Cinderella story fan. And I just thought that that could have been an amazing um, show to have produced. Yeah, yeah, I would have watched it for sure. So... (laughs) Yeah, regular listeners get accustomed to me going off on soccer stuff here. Tangents, everything relates to soccer. Soccer explains <laughs> the world. There was a book that wrote that, so about that. So um, I think I read that book actually. It was a good book. Yeah, yeah. So and I, I had the author on the show. So um, so we're going to talk about transformation, personal transformation. You, I really enjoyed your book, uh, which you've just I guess updated and re-released. Disrupt yourself, master relentless change and speed up your learning curve. So what was the original impetus to write the book? You know, that's one of those questions that it's you can answer it many different ways. Um, but let me see if I can streamline so that we're not here all day long. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was, an, as I just mentioned, I was an equity analyst working at Merrill Lynch um, in uh, focusing on stocks in Latin America, like Televisa, like America mm-hmm. Mobile. And, and this is back in like 2003, 2004. I read the book, The Innovator's Dilemma by right. Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. And I remember reading that book and it just was in, in many a transformative experience, if you will, because I was looking at wireless at the time and every single quarter, America Mobile was beating my numbers, like just every time. And, and Telmex's numbers weren't. So that was the wireline company and then America right. Mobile was the wireless. And I read, I read The Innovator's Dilemma and I said, oh, that's what's going on is that wireless is disrupting wireline. And I was just fascinated that there was this theory that could explain to me the world and help me understand what was happening. 
Um, and, 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 but the more I read that book, it, the more I started, I think maybe just because of my own personal bent, started thinking, well, how does this apply to me? Like, I understand that this explains products and services and companies and countries, but I also remember having this moment. I think this was 2004, and I had just had this conversation with, um, someone in management saying, you know, I'd really like to try something else. I'd like to do something else internally. I'd like to go into management. And they kind of laughed at me, kind of <laughs> snickered like, oh, that's nice. That's never going to happen. And I remember coming back to that book and thinking, you know what, if I want to do whatever it is I think I'm meant to do, which I had a very vague notion, I think many of us do, um, I'm going to have to disrupt myself. I'm going to have to leave Wall Street and go do something else. And so the impetus for that book was really that that aha that I had when I was still working on Wall Street and just starting to chase down that idea. What does it mean to disrupt yourself? And then I subsequently left. I disrupted myself. I left Wall Street. We were now living in Boston. I connected with Clayton Christensen, mm-hmm. working on a bunch of volunteer projects with him. Um, he wanted to start a fund, asked me if I would start that with him and his son. And so as I started to really get steeped in these frameworks of disruption and and study at the, 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 the feet of this giant of a man, I just started really thinking about this idea more and more and, and eventually wrote an article in Harvard Business Review titled Disrupt Yourself, which then later become a book, become, became a book. The book, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, we should have mentioned that. Clayton just passed away recently. Um, yes, in January. Yeah. yeah, the world lost a really good man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that book also, I mean, I was <laughs> quite taken by it when I when I first read it, which is quite a while ago. Um, and I'm glad you sort of took it and put it into these personal terms, right, instead of company examples, but human examples about it. Because, you know, I look at it from a, you know, we're largely a sales audience on this show, and but this idea of disrupting yourself is is so fundamental, I think, to certainly sales, but I think perhaps every profession in, in these days is that, you know, the landscape you're dealing with is is always changing, you know, whether it's yep. the internet or technology or your customers' behaviors being affected by those things I mentioned or industries coming and going. And I look at, we really struggle in sales with the whole idea about how do, how do people improve, right? And how do we, how do we help people perform at higher levels? And yeah, you know, we just don't have a good model to look at that from, right? Is is because I think that there's always we go into it this assumption that that you know people sort of fall into these various strata of you know from bad to good, you know the A players to the the D players, the F players. When I really think that that people really exist within most people exist within a certain band, there might be some outliers on either end, but it's the steps they take themselves that move them out of that band to, to become that outlier or that top performer. And that basically everybody has that capability. I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting whenever we have this conversation, this, this kind of conversation that you and I are having, because it starts to go to a lot of a priori assumptions or fundamental assumptions that we have about the world and about people. And I think, you know, someone like a Carol Dweck in her book, mm-hmm. growth mind, you know, mindset, I think has really, open up that conversation. But even so, I think that there is so much of how we're programmed and how we think about the world. We're like, yes, growth mindset. I believe I can change and grow. 
And yet when we start to analyze and, uh, you know, what we say to ourselves, what we say to other people, I mean, just for example, I'll give you, it's a simple example. I've said on numerous occasions, I'm a very serious person. And in the moment when I say that, I have now labeled myself and I have closed the door on my ability to be not serious, to be, you know, <laughs> fun loving, to, you know, to be joyful, to laugh at things and, and not even realizing I'm doing it. And so even I, I think, you know, as I'm talking about this and writing about it and thinking about it all day long, there's this, this notion or these a priori assumptions that we have where we're saying, yes, I believe I can change. Yes, I believe I can be different. Yes, I believe I can disrupt myself, but only in these certain parts of my life. There's the other part of my life where I don't believe it. And so that's part of why I think these ideas and concepts are so powerful because if we can start to apply them across the sort of the array of behaviors and of our of our life then we start to really see some some significant and meaningful change happen well i was thinking about this along those lines with the issue of of how okay if if, if everybody has the basic capabilities to succeed let's say or the vast majority of people do and they exist in this band is the question becomes really how do people become motivated to take that step to begin to disrupt themselves and it seems like it's it i don't know as more as thinking about it's like and even to the point you sort of mentioned about people saying i can't change in these areas in order to admit that they could change in those areas they have to be willing to be vulnerable and admit that there's something about themselves or about some subject that they don't know yeah and i, and I always absolutely. feel like that's such a huge barrier especially in again in the sales world as we <clears throat> without getting into a long conversation about how we structure sales, but like, you know, managers, we, we, because of the position they're in, we assume that they're experts on this broad array of topics, which most of them aren't. And as a consequence, they're not able to really help their people in the way they need to, to be able to help them grow. But in order for that change to start happening is they'll have to admit that, yeah, there's something I don't know. And, but they don't admit that to somebody that's paying them a lot of money because they assume they know that. Yeah. Yeah. And so like everybody's bought up and down the chain is bought into this fiction that, that <laughs> keeps these, these, uh, yeah, inefficient structures in place. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So let's, let's talk about the S curve. Cause this is a concept came from the innovators dilemma and you're employing this you know, at a personal level mm -hmm. is, is, you know, was this, yeah, you know, as you were starting to work with with Clayton Christensen, was it like an epiphany where you sort of looked at it and said, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah, it was. It was. I, so we were using, so that, so just for, for people who aren't familiar with it, it's something that was developed by E.M. Rogers in, in 1960, or I shouldn't say developed, popularized by E.M. Rogers in 1962. And he wrote a book called The Diffusion of Innovations. And it talks about how quickly an innovation will be adopted and we, you know, during COVID-19 have looked at that to track how quickly a virus will spread. Uh -huh. And so we were using it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund to figure out, well, how quickly will an innovation be adopted? And therefore, is it does it make sense to buy the stock now or later? And so um, as we were doing that, because I was already thinking that disruption applies to products and services and people, I think there was a natural sort of extension of that. And, and again, I come from the stock market. I was used to thinking about momentum, you know, 
know, what makes a stock go up? What makes a stock go down? How do you drive that momentum? There was this notion for me of like, wait a second, I think this applies to people too. Like, how does this S curve apply to us? And, and so the big aha that I had was, is it could help us understand how we learn and how we grow. And so just very, at a very high level, if you can just in your brain right now, kind of trace an S, it almost looks like a roller coaster, but you've got the base of that S when you first start something, um, it's, it's brand new and your growth is happening, but you can't see it. It's sort of like lily pads. It's happening, but it's not obvious. And so it feels like it's very slow. And this, um, you know, it feels like a slog. And when you know that, it helps you avoid discouragement. And that's also happening with an innovation as well. You know, sort of first 10 to 15%, nothing's very obvious. But then you hit that knee of that curve um, and you move into the steep, sleek back of that and this is where you're in hypergrowth. And from a learning perspective, whereas at the launch point of that S curve, it took a lot of time for a little bit to happen. Now in a little time, a lot happens. And so mm-hmm. you know enough, but not too much. And it's hard, but not too hard. And it's exhilarating. This is where you feel like, you know, this is where I'm supposed to be like, I am on the right S curve. Right. And then there's the top of that S where you start to say, you know what? I'm really good at my job. I'm hitting my quota every month. Um, But there's a piece of you who says, I'm also a little bit bored. I'm starting to feel like I'm just dialing it in. And what's happening there is that, yes, growth is still happening, but it's happening at a decelerating pace. And so you're no longer learning. Your neurons, you're no longer getting the feel-good effects of, of dopamine. And so you start to experience that dilemma of personal disruption, which is, you know, if I jump, there's going to be risk because it's kind of scary to jump and do something new. But if I don't jump, there's also risk. Um, I could get toppled. I'll have other people selling more than I am because I'm not excited anymore about what I'm learning and how I'm growing and developing. What I will say, Andy, is I believe that every single person is on an S-curve, all of us, including Mm -hmm. you, including your producer, Alec, like we're all on an S-curve. And so then the question becomes is, how do we make sure that we get onto the right S-curve? Because when we're on the right S-curve, we are motivated to climb that S-curve. Okay, well, we'll get back to that. That's a great question. How do we know we're on the right right S-curve? I mean, I want people to sort of imagine you know, this S is not like an S I would write with my handwriting. It's, 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 as you said, it has sort of the steep curve in the middle. So there's our S at the top and the bottom, it's just so people can sort of picture it in their minds. But it seems like there could be sort of false S curves as well. Because as I was reading through the book, I sort of struck also by, um, you know, this whole idea of like the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Is that when people get a little bit of experience, they experience a little of that dopamine rush, they get this danger sort of being self-satisfied. So they haven't hit the mastery mm-hmm. part, but they've they've got that rush and they think, oh, okay, I've got it. Right. And then they stop learning. And so it's almost like you could be in the, you know, the uh, high growth part of the an accelerated part of the the growth curve, but slide backwards. Yeah. Such a great observation. And part of what can happen. And so if you think of, again, so you've got, so let's just trace it out for people with your hand, go from left to right flat. And then um, with your hand now go um, sort of down to up with your hand, but sort of sweeping to the right. Mm-hmm. And then that's the steep part. And then use your hand, your right hand to go from right 
to further right, sort of flattening out. So flat, steep, flat. And what you're talking about is when you go from being at the flat or the launch point into that steep part, you start growing really, really fast. You're in that engagement area. And as you said, you can just start to say, I did it. Here I am. <laughs> victory. I'm so we declare awesome. victory. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm a great salesperson. Look at, you know, I hit my numbers these month, this month. And so one, and we sometimes do see that in, in particular in markets that are very hot and there's a lot of demand for talent. And we'll use sales right now because that's who your audience is. There's a lot of demand. And so you start to think you're super awesome and someone comes to you and dangles a lot of money and a lot of incentives at you. And then you jump to a brand new S curve and you start start all over again. And so you barely get into engagement and then you jump and mm-hmm. you do that over and over again. And when you do that, you actually arrest your development because there are things that you learn in the process of being in that sweet spot that are going to allow you that cycle of you learn and you leap and repeat. It's the completing of the cycle as many times as you possibly can that are that are going to allow you to fully develop as right. a professional and as a human being. And so, yes, you can have that sort of false sense and and yes, you want to disrupt yourself, but there's also, you know, you can also disrupt yourself too much. Well, right. And this is this is a critical point for many people in this audience who are listening who, you know, average tenure in a lot of sales jobs these days is sort of 12 to 18 months. And mm-hmm. especially in some of the higher growth industries. And I see this repeatedly as you know, people make these quick jumps and they get to this point after the second or third jump, it's like, I really don't know any more than I did before. That's right. No more, more, no more closer to mastery of this, this profession I'm in. And I relate back to my own experiences. I sort of did that earlier in my career as well, back when the, the job hopping of that nature first started years and years ago. And I was in one situation where I had the opportunity to leave after a couple of years. I said, no, I don't know why I told myself mm-hmm. this. I said, I need to stay. And for me, that transformed my career by staying instead of jumping. You know, I got promoted in two or three different new jobs, that incredible experience that I'd never have had. I you know, took over international sales. I had no international experience. All these opportunities came because I stayed to keep on learning. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I mean, there is some, there is that cycle that you, it, it's important to play that out. And I think actually that's where the Peter principle can come in is that if you jump too many times, you're, you're getting all these basically false starts. And so you're not learning anything. And then all of a sudden, and I think this sometimes happens is this is why people lose their jobs is because they've kept climbing. They haven't learned anything. And so they kind of have to get pushed back and put in a place where they can learn something new, and and again, complete that cycle of development that we're mm-hmm. talking about. You just trigger a thought. Isn't it about time for the Peter Principle to come back? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, one, no one ever refers to it, right? I mean, and it's not that you're well, dating just yourself. Did. <laughs> yeah, I know. But if I brought it up, I know I'd be dating myself. You're younger than I am. So that's that's fine. But it's but it is a book that's to your point it still has relevance because I see mm-hmm. the example you gave this and you see it in sales. People jump too quickly. And not a few cases is they go these rapid jumps and then they get promoted into a management position Mm -hmm. and it just compounds the issue because they don't have the mastery or the experience to be able to help the people that work for them. And that's it just compounds the problem for everybody in that chain. Right. And, you know, as you're saying that, one of the thoughts that I'm having is for if, if someone's listening right now and they're saying to themselves, well, you know, I, I, I have this opportunity and I want to take it. 
you know, what I would argue is like use this is as as a sort of a signal to you to go have a conversation with your manager. Because if you're feeling like you really want to jump, it's not just about the money. It's never just about the money. There's some element of Mm -hmm. you that's saying, I want to learn more. I want to stretch more. I want to be seen. And this is one of the challenges for a manager when you've got people in the sweet spot of that S is if they're really good and everything's working, you tend to ignore them. You're focused on the people who are at the launch point of that S who don't know what they're doing and you're trying to get them up to speed. And you focus the people who are at the high end because you're afraid that they're going to leave. So you start to ignore people who are in the sweet spot. And so what I would say is if you're like, you know, I'm feeling like I want to go, go to your manager, go to your stakeholders and say, I love it here, but I need more training. I need more opportunities. I need, I need to be seen. I need to be acknowledged, whatever it is. So you can just play out that cycle. Even if it's another six to 12 months, um, usually it's, it's symptomatic of of something else. Um, Mm -hmm. Because in my experience, it's just, it's not, it's not usually about the money. Well, I agree. I agree. Well, one of the things that that uh, you just brought up, which is is something that you talk about, you know, go to your manager, say I want more training and so on. But but it seems like that in many respects, when I and again I haven't done this rigorous academic study, but I look at the people I've worked with over my long career and and people that have succeeded versus those that that haven't given what I think is sort of relative similar capabilities. It wasn't relying on the company to invest in them. They invested in themselves. Hmm. This is, this is you know, they took the response as much as you invested in yourself, right? And disrupted what you were doing completely. Is This, this to me, is, is one of the big hurdles for a lot of people. And talk specifically about sales, but it, I'm sure it exists in a lot of professions. But sales is perhaps more acute because it's, it's such a performance-based profession. Is that, you know, the, the learning comes from... I, always, I think it's you know, more experiential it's things you do on your own more than anything you can learn in you know, a company training program and so on. It's what are the things you're doing yourself and yeah. what are the things you're reading to increase your acumen and, and other examples. But it's getting people to take that first step is really hard. And mm-hmm. so you talk about in the book about uh, you know, if a task is both meaningful and relevant, right? And right. it seems like just maybe in general, we do a bad job of explaining that for people as to why they should be motivated to take and make these investments in themselves. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I I am so I got so excited about the S curve, you know, in terms of thinking of it as a, a an artifact for us to think about learning is that it really does both of those jobs. And I, I do think that we need both, which is Number one, for each of us to take responsibility for our own development and learning and be able to say, okay, oh, now I get what this looks like. It's going to be slow and then it's going to be fast and then it's going to be slow. And when it starts to be slow, I need to figure out what I'm going to do next. It also, though, gives you a way to talk about it, a language that you can become fluent in, that you can have a conversation with your stakeholders as well. So that, you know, as you're saying, yeah, I think it's time for me to jump to a new S curve or do something new along this S curve. You can have that conversation with um, your stakeholders and you're speaking the same language and basically say to them, I really love working for you and I love working here and I want to be here. I also know that I'm starting to get to the top of my S curve and my utility to this organization Mm -hmm. will start to decrease. So here's what I think we can do about it. And are you open to that? And and, and the thing that I think is so fascinating, Andy, and you, you tell me if this is true, I'm always fascinated by how 
Um, People who are good at sales, and I really believe it is such an important, important skill, are amazing at selling externally, but struggle to sell internally. And maybe it goes back to the cobbler's children have no shoes, but taking those skills that you use every (laughs) single day and being able to figure out how to sell your ideas, sell your jump to a new S curve internally. You're chuckling. So it sounds like you agree. Well, no, I, I, well, I, I, I didn't, I never had that problem. I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> well, I good. was, I was always good selling internally, uh, sometimes too good, um, but worked for one company. I was <laughs> running sales for the startup and the CEO comes in, we were a mature company, but says, you realize, you know, I'm walking around this company talking to everybody. Everybody says they're doing a project for you. He says, you realize you don't <laughs> set the tone for, you're not saying the strategy for the company, don't you? I was like, <laughs> That's that's one of the things I was really good at is, is getting everybody you know sold on on supporting the stuff I was working on. But but I agree. I think I love of, it. I'm so <laughs> impressed. No wonder you're running this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's. I agree. I think it's it's. You're sort of really talking about self advocacy, right? To some degree. And yes. and uh, yeah, I think that that people again. Uh, gets that point I talked earlier is you have to be vulnerable to advocate for yourself. And it's so funny is, you know, one of the things that's increasingly come into the vernacular in sales is, well, if you want to build a connection with another human being and you want to start building trust is, well, you have to be vulnerable, right? You have to reveal something of yourself mm-hmm. in order to start that conversation with the person on the other side for them to reveal something vulnerable to the, about themselves. And I think that's, that's still hard for many people because, you know, when you're in sales, you're supposed to be the expert. Yeah, you know, and you don't want people reluctant to get that 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 personal level, and it's it's risky, right? I mean, that's this vulnerability is risky, and and you talk about the risk a lot in the book about yeah taking the taking the step to disrupt yourself is is a risk. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, so there's something though that if we can, I I, I just want to touch on because I'm having sure. a curiosity because I think that there's. So sometimes I think when we think about vulnerability, um, it's like revealing to you, for example, hey, I want to do, you know, like when I went to this manager and said, hey, I'd like to go into management at some point. And that felt very vulnerable to me, but it wasn't actually useful um, and, and in that particular situation. So I, I think what I'm hearing you say, and I think a productive kind of vulnerability is more of hey, I think you, my client, are trying to get X done, or hey, I think you, my boss, are trying to get X done or Y done. And I think I can help you solve it. And here's what it would look like. I don't know everything, but here's some of what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to run this experiment? So there's a vulnerability in terms of not around your identity or your sense of self, but just a willingness to say, I don't have it all figured out, but I think think I can figure out and I think we can do it together and I want to figure it out in your behalf. So that's how I'm thinking about it in this context. Yeah. Is that is that where your head's going? Yeah. I mean it's a willingness to be wrong. Okay. Right? That's, that's basically what you're yep. saying. Yeah. If I if I yep. lay out this experiment, so I don't know if you know uh, Charlie Green who writes about trust and was one of the co authors on the original trusted advisor, you know, he calls calls it calls it bring a risky gift, right? To a conversation. Mm, is, I love that. I may just be speculating here. Mm-hmm. But let me lay this out, right? And you could just be completely wrong, but yeah. that's okay. You're, you've engaged in the conversation, but you have to take a risk to put yourself in that position, and that's vulnerability. So yep. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. 
But one of the things I wanted to ask you, though, is, is why, why do you think it's perceived as a risk to invest in disrupting yourself? I mean, you, you talk about various types of risks in the, in the book, but it's, it's... Why do I think it's perceived as a risk? Okay, yeah, I have, I have two answers for sure. you on that. Well, maybe one answer, but it, it's sort of and a I know couple it gets, of thoughts. It gets to sort of this idea of the functional and emotional rewards, which I want to get into as well, but go ahead. Right, okay, yeah, perfect. Okay, so, um, so I want everybody again to picture some graph paper. And um, your life is on this grid of graphs. And basically, if you think about from a, um, your life right now today, let's call it you're at a 12 on the graph paper of life. And you're going over one, up one, over one, up one. So it's basically the trajectory that you're currently on, whatever that is. Um, when you choose to disrupt yourself, um, you are making the decision that, yes, I'm on a 12 on that y-axis of success. And I'm willing to sacrifice some of my stature, my prestige, my compensation, my standing, whatever it is to go down to a 10, you know, to have people say to me, are you out of your mind? Because that's uh -huh. what it will look like. <laughs> um, because I believe, and this goes to, I believe that when I do this, when I go down to that 10, my trajectory will stop being over one, up one, but it'll be over one, up two, or over one, up mm -hmm. three. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you do that is you may say, well, I'm at a 12 and I've, I'm getting these certain sort of functional rewards. I've got this particular salary um, and I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job. But usually when you make that decision to disrupt yourself, there's, there's a functional job that you're thinking, you know, maybe in the future I can make more money, but almost always there's an emotional job that has been left undone that you feel like when you disrupt yourself, when you do that, that over one up three, over one up five, it will do both the functional and almost always, certainly the emotional jobs better. And so in my case, when I left Wall Street, yeah, it was stupid. From a financial perspective, it was a very dumb decision. And, you know, boss saying to me, you're going to regret this for the rest of your life. Um, it was it was because that job was no longer doing the emotional job that I needed it to. So I had to disrupt myself so I could find a profession, um, a, a, you know, a vocation that would allow me to do both the functional and the emotional job. So you step back to slingshot forward. Yeah, and I wanted to sort of bring this back in, try to put in. I want your your feedback on this. See if I'm off base or not. Here's my risky gift I'm bringing. Is oh, so, I love that. So you talk about. I accept your risky gift. Okay. Well, I haven't said it yet. You may not. So when <laughs> so when you talk about the jobs to be done theory, which I, I was fascinated mm -hmm. by uh, when I first read about, it, and then you bring it up again and made me think about it in the sales context because. And you, I guess Clayton Christensen popularized it. You said, uh, and you gave an example of yourself as, you know, there's yeah. always a functional emotional component to it. As an investor, you hired an investment to do the job of making money, the functional job of making money, meaning when you invested money in something, you're hiring it to do that job. But you're also hiring it to do an emotional job for you. Mm -hmm. So I think about in sales is that the buyer, the customer is hiring the seller to do the functional job of helping them make a good decision. Mm -hmm. And that the emotional component, the emotional job they're hiring them to do is to make a decision that they perceive to be less risky, but also that will achieve certain outcomes for them as a business. I would actually argue that's the functional job. So the, the functional job is we have certain things that we want to get done in our business. That's the functional job. 
the emotional job is what you said first, which is you're going to make me feel safer in making this decision because I don't have the expertise to do it. So you're going to sort of okay. hold my hand, okay. help walk me through it as we're trying to implement it. When I feel like I don't know what I'm going to do, how to do it, I'll be able to call you and rely on you. I trust you to help me in this process of change that I'm making by buying your product to help my, make my business better, that you will be there for me emotionally to figure this out when I don't know how to figure it out. So that's how I would think about it, sort of the functional versus emotional piece. What do you think when you hear that? Well, I was just thinking about, you know, from a buyer's perspective, they look at it as they've got a job to be done to make a decision, right? Mm -hmm. And going into it, they really don't know. They know they've got a problem, but maybe they don't know the scope of the problem. They certainly haven't defined the options that exist to be able to solve it. And they need sellers to help them go through that process mm -hmm. to re to arrive to make a good decision. So I sort of looked at that as the functional part of it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So you're, you're backing way up, right. To even figuring <laughs> out what the solution is. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Well, but, see, but that's an interesting point because I think that, that most sellers don't pay attention to that part of the, the job the buyer is trying to accomplish. They just focus on, Oh, well I'm, I'm engaging with the buyer who obviously know, they know what they really need to do. So, I'm just competing on the basis of whether I'm going to be selected as the vendor or not, mm -hmm. which, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a whole different, you know, job, right. That, but it's the end of the process. Whereas I think it really is functional to help them because they need, they need you, they need you. That's what they're talking to you as a salesperson. If they could do it without you, they'd do it without you. Yeah. We always so, would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then, but the emotional component is, I think to your point is, yeah. Can you then as a company, help them achieve the outcomes that were promised in the, the sales process. Right. And going back to your part about making the decision in the first place is, right. you know, can I trust you to yes. help me think through this? Um, and maybe even as I think through this, if we realize that you're actually don't have the solution that I need, can I trust you to tell me that I should find the solution somewhere else? Right. I think yeah. that's the whole emotional piece as well. Yeah, that's even better. Yeah, that's good. All right, so I'm not completely crazy. I sort of there, but yeah, I think this is this is <laughs> what's well, a topic I want to explore some more with with sellers because I think it's a great framework for people to to think about what it is they're actually trying to do when they engage with a customer and what's the customer looking to get out of it. Because I think yeah. you know, when when the when a buyer ag agrees to spend or invest some of their time with a seller, they're basically hiring them to do a job, right. And, we tend right. to, and most sellers don't tend to think of it that way. But yeah, you're being hired to do a job. And they're hiring the product to do a job. That's what's interesting that too, to me, as right? Well, right. Yeah, you're so hiring the hiring. product to do a job. Well, that's almost two different sets of hiring, right? One is you, mm -hmm. because you as a seller are the sort of exemplification of the product and the company initially until they actually start implementing it. Yeah, they're hiring you, the salesperson, and they're hiring the product, absolutely, yeah. to do both a functional and an emotional job. And yeah. as you're starting to tease that out, if you can almost have this grid and look at, okay, so what functional job are they hiring the product to do? What emotional job? What functional job are they hiring me to do? What emotional job? And when you can start to tease those out, it makes it a lot easier to make make a sale because you're able to really understand what it is they're trying to buy. And, and if you can even sell it to them or if they need to go somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. We may have to collaborate on something on that. Um, <laughs> Cause I think this is, this is something as I read the book, I was like, okay, let's, yeah, we explain this. This would make a lot of sense for, for sellers to help them make sense of really what they're supposed to be focused on, um, mm -hmm. which is 
a problem. So, um, all right, we're sort of running out of time, but I got so much I want to talk about. Um, <laughs> well, I think one of the good, things that, that's a good problem. Yeah. Well, I think one of the the topics maybe we can tackle before we go to the end. I thought was interesting in, in the book as well as is uh, this whole idea of embracing constraints. Mm. And you know, you're thinking about <clears throat> your disruption, and but the fact is that that uh, understanding there are constraints as you grow and in the field that you're in is is you said is actually liberating in many respects. And yeah, I just want to dig into that a bit because I I sort of immediately my mind gravitated to <laughs> this is going to sound completely off track, but gravitated to poetry. Is, oh, it doesn't sound off track at all. Go right. ahead, set, set the example because it's it's powerful. Yeah, please. Right. Well, there are various forms of poetry, right? I mean, it could be the iambic pentameter, the the meter that you use. It could be the structure, the type of poem you're writing. They have constraints. Mm -hmm. Right. There's so many syllables per per line, or you know, rhyming patterns, or you know, it's a sonnet, you know, thirteen lines, all that stuff. Is this amazing creativity flows out of the constraints? Right. Well, it's interesting that you would mention that. So a year or two ago, we had Orson Scott Card on our podcast who wrote the book Ender's Game, which is one of my favorite books of all time. And he actually used that exact example of what you just said is that he, he said when he was in high school, his teacher, his English teacher pulled him aside and he said, you can, this was the 70s, 60s and 70s. He said, you can keep writing this gushy self, you know, whatever poetry that you want. But if you want to truly become a great writer, you need to learn how to write sonnets. So you need to start writing sonnets. And he said, basically, he credits his ability to write with that discipline of learning to write sonnets. So the bigger principle of this that you're um, touching on is this notion, if you think about science, is that in order for, you know, anything to move forward, there has to be friction, there has to be something to bump up against. And um, one of the things that we tend to do is to say, well, if only I had more time, or if I had a bigger budget, or I had more expertise, exactly. or I had more buy-in from my stakeholders, then I could be really effective of whatever it is I'm trying to do in this particular instance sales. But we know from the research, we know from the science that in fact, it's constraints that allow us to move up our S-curve of learning. I'll give you just one quick you know, example as you're thinking about this is there was a post-mortem of, of 200 failed startups and they divided them into the funded startups and the unfunded startups. And the number one reason that the funded startups, the ones that have been able to raise outside capital, had plenty of money on hand, the number one reason that they went, went out of business was that they ran out of cash. Mm -hmm. And it was the only the number 10 reason for the unfunded startups. And so one of the things that um, I, I, I'm really advocating for is this notion that as you're trying to climb an S-curve, your constraints, whatever they are, and you're going to have them because you always do, is how do you turn those constraints, not just into you know a victim of like, why me? And not even neutralize them, but how can those constraints be transformative for you? And one of the things I think is so exciting and, and why, you know, what's happening in the world right now is that you know, Clayton Christensen said that the Great Recession, and I think it's also true for any sort of major upheaval, would have an unmitigated positive impact on innovation because mm -hmm. when tension is the greatest, we're most willing to rethink how we're doing business. And so for everybody who is listening to you, all of your audience, I would actually ask the question, if you think about some of your greatest successes in sales, 
it, undoubtedly they were brought to you because there was some constraint, um, which may include a failure because a failure is a constraint. There was some constraint in place that caused you to become better than you ever thought possible because you were trying to figure out how to, how to create something out of that constraint. And I think it gets back to one of the topics I was bringing up earlier is, you know, how do you sort of motivate people to, um, <laughs> to invest in themselves is, is, you know, one of the like Gallup does surveys of salespeople and employees and so on. And, and, you know, the number one reason, and I think it's roughly 60% of, of sellers said that they left a job is because of their manager, they weren't getting what they needed from their manager. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, well, that's a constraint, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're looking at them as a limit on your ability to improve. What are you doing? So operate within that constraint. What are, what are the steps you're taking? You yourself, how are you investing in yourself? You know, are you turning off the TV instead of watching the a repeat of The Bachelor or whatever? You know, read a book <laughs> or do or do something. And I think this is what really, for me, a lot of it sort of boiled down to that is, yeah, that this not getting maybe the support you want isn't disabling. It's actually enabling for you if you look at it the right way. That this now says, okay, given these constraints, how do I get better? Right. And what information is it giving you? And and one of the questions that we'll, we'll ask in our coaching is, you know, in this situation where you've got a boss that seems to be a blocker, you know, what percentage of this is about your boss? What percentage of this is about you? And what percentage of this is about the system? Mm-hmm. And it would take pretty much a very, very narcissistic person to say, none of it is about you. Right. right? And so when you do that, you start to open the door of saying, okay, so I've got this constraint and I understand that there's this block, but what oftentimes basically is just saying there's something for you to learn. What is it that you can learn? Um, you're in a room game. How are you going to get out of that room game? So I think that that's really, um, interesting and, 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 and powerful just to say, well, if your boss is the constraint, then like you said, what are you going to create out of that? And what is there for you to learn? Because inevitably, there is something for you to learn about yourself and how to become more effective. Well, I think selling in general is sort of a game of constraints, right? I mean, you, you go to talk to a prospect. <laughs> I love that. Yes. Yes. There, well there's said. There's constraints. You know, can I talk to your boss? Well, no. <laughs> you know, well, hmm. All right. Well, how are we going to make that happen? Right? Uh-huh. Or this is what we do. Well, that costs too much. Hmm. Right? I mean, just, it's a game of constraints you have to deal with at all times. And I think the people who are generally more successful are those who embrace that ambiguity that comes with the constraints and say, oh, what can I do with the situation? You're probably one of those people that loves the word no, right? No is just the starting point for you, isn't it? <laughs> well, I was telling the story <laughs> yesterday with somebody. It's, is I had a, a boss who came up to me once. I was you know, VP of sales for this, this company. And boss comes up to me and says, question for you. He says, don't you ever just say yes to anything? <laughs> and I said, no. <laughs> because, yeah, every time there was a suggestion, I, you know, do it this way, do it that way. I, you know, it's like, no, let me think about that, right? You know, is that mm-hmm. because then you, suddenly you're putting constraints on me because you want me to go do this, but what's the best way that, that I could get it done? So, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So, you wait, wait. So, wait a second. So, you're telling me, I was saying that you're when people say no to you, you're like, okay, that's a constraint. How am I going to get around that? But well, yeah, you're also that telling me that you're really comfortable saying, no, let me think about that because maybe there's a different way to do it. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, you like it in both instances. You're willing to say no, but you also like the no. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. 
There's something to that. I hope that you really double click on that because that to me is a secret of a person who's a great salesperson. Well, that's that's the point I was trying to make is is that I was fortunate enough early in my career to have bosses that gave me leeway, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was trained in a methodology. I was trained in a process and I had my own sort of unique personality. I was a real introvert coming out of school and starting sales, still an an introvert. Um, But it's like, yeah, the way they want me to do this just either have to quit or I got to find a way to do it that aligns with how I feel comfortable working, which I did. And they didn't yeah. care because ultimately I was, you know, delivering big you numbers. You were selling. Right. You were so doing they, your job. But right now we've entered in this phase because of, of, I think because there's so many managers that have been rapidly promoted without achieving the mastery at sales that they, they need is they're not comfortable letting salespeople become this best version of themselves because it's perceived to be too risky. I'll put trust in the metrics I can look at, but I don't want you to vary from what we're doing. And so selling has become more compliance-based in many respects. And this is, yeah, one of the things I keep advocating is now let give people the room to discover you know, themselves in that regard. Oh, that's interesting. So if people were getting promoted too quickly um, because they're not able to sort of understand what to do enough that they can break the rules is becoming more prescriptive, which is making, mm-hmm. which is hindering the whole process. Because it's, per- it's perceived as less risky. Mm-hmm. Because if mm-hmm. we've got a process that's prescriptive and I follow the process, if my sellers aren't making it, well, it's not really a reflection of me. I follow the mm-hmm. process. Interesting. <laughs> well, it's good. Well, unfortunately, we've got to jump to another interview here before too long, but it's been so much fun talking with you. would love to have you back sometime and do it again. I would love that. This has been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, if people want to contact you or connect with you, how can they do that? I think the easiest way is if you're interested in these ideas would be to listen to uh, one of our podcast episodes. Um, If you just go to WhitneyJohnson.com or you can go find it anywhere, but it's Disrupt Yourself. And I would direct people to episode 100 of the podcast, which is all about taking the right kinds of risks and episode 120, which is about playing to your distinctive strengths. If you want to just drill down on these ideas a little bit more. Oh, perfect. Oh, good. Well, Whitney, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I am so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Whitney Johnson, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.